verses 1 to 6. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, before us this morning is this letter to the church in Philippi. Paul is the original church planter to that church. The theme of this letter is joy in Christ. And throughout this letter, it's clear the apostle has a great affection, a great love for the Philippian church. And so we see here in Philippians, and if you would read the whole letter, it becomes even clearer, is that this is a letter written from a pastor to a congregation that he loves, not serving them at the moment, but he remembers them with great fondness to these saints who are in Philippi. Philippi was an important place. It was an important city. It was a Roman city. It had been named after Philip of Macedon. That's Alexander the Great's father, 400 years before the writing of this letter. It was most recently, to the writing of the letter, taken over by Octavian. And Philippi was unique in that the citizens had Roman citizenship. And they were very proud of this, potentially arrogant. It was to come up later in the letter. We read about it in Acts 16. In Acts 16, we see that the Apostle Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And he goes, seeing that he's been called by God to go there. Philippi is in Macedonia, modern-day Greece. So Philippi is the first church established in Europe. First church established in Europe through the preaching of the gospel. In Acts 16, we see that there is already a Jewish community there. Women were meeting together to pray to Jehovah, to Yahweh. One of these women was converted under Paul's teaching, Lydia, and she, along with her house, were baptized. She became an important woman, a very godly woman. We also read of a demon-possessed slave girl and a Philippian jailer who believed. This church in Philippi, like all churches, had some issues. But overall, this church was quite healthy. This letter to the church in Philippi is quite positive. He rejoices over them. He thanks God for them. He is filled with joy, a remembrance of them. And he tells them, likewise, to be joyful. To live in response to what Jesus Christ has done. And so that's what we do this morning as we look at these first verses of Philippians. We examine our hearts to ensure that we are also living in joy, in love, in unity, in fellowship, in the fellowship that Jesus Christ has won for us. And therefore we are united to him. Because of that union, this letter is written to us, congregation. As we begin this letter, we do so under the theme, Christ unites his church so that his people may live for him. Christ unites his church so that his people may live for him. First, we're going to see that there's a greeting with love in these first two verses. Then a praying with joy in verses 3 to 4. And then third, partnering in the gospel in verses 5 and 6. So first, greeting with love. This letter, or epistle, it's the Greek word for letter, begins in an ordinary way that letters did 2,000 years ago. If you have your Bibles open, and I encourage you to have them open, look at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. It begins first with listing the writer, then the recipient, and then a greeting. The writer is the Apostle Paul. 
He includes Timothy's name as well. Timothy likely was with Paul at the writing of this letter. And he's writing this letter from Rome. He's in prison. This is one of the prison epistles of the Apostle Paul. I think it's probably AD, AD 60, if you want to put it in historical context. Timothy was about to go to visit the Philippians, and he was in agreement with what was written. And so Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. In some letters of Paul, you know that he has to defend his apostleship. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle by Jesus Christ, but not here. The Philippians didn't doubt the calling of Paul. They didn't doubt the apostleship of Paul. Rather, the title he gives to he and Timothy is not the super apostles. The greatest gift of the church. He calls themselves servants of Christ Jesus. Even in the footnote here in the ESV, it says, or slaves. Not a very politically correct term today, but they're slaves of Jesus Christ. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ. The apostle is writing this letter from prison. In verse 7, he mentions his chains. He's seemingly a slave to Rome. Right? He's in the inner prison in Philippi. Later, he's in shackles in Rome, permitted to write, more like house arrest. He's a slave to Rome. But not really. Not for the apostle Paul. He's not a slave to Rome. He's not a slave to anyone but the Lord Jesus Christ. His chains and his bondage he had when he was a Jew, when he was a Pharisee, those chains have been broken. Now he's privileged to call himself a slave of Jesus Christ, a servant of Jesus Christ. Why? What makes him a slave of Jesus Christ? What makes somebody a slave? They're bought. Slaves are bought and sold. What was Paul bought with? The same thing, brothers and sisters, we are bought with through faith. The blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ impacts the greeting, the introduction of this letter. Without the blood of Jesus Christ, no one is a slave of Jesus Christ. It's the greatest privilege you can have to be called a slave of Jesus Christ. Greater than the title of king, queen, president, prime minister... Slave of Jesus Christ. Jesus bought him with his own blood. And this puts all believers in this position of honor. Next we come to the recipients of this letter. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. He's writing this letter to the church. To the saints. Saints are not super Christians, as some churches would call them. Um, one church in particular claims that one can only become a saint if a miracle has happened to them in their life or that they've done a miracle themselves. Rather, in the New Testament, the word saint refers to believers in Jesus Christ. The word saint refers to someone who is holy, someone who is set apart. And so Paul writes this letter to the saints who are in Philippi. Well, why are they holy? What sets them apart? It's not their own righteousness. It's not their own works. It's not the fact that they have everything in order pretty well in their church in Philippi. Not at all. In fact, the opposite's the case. Their holiness is found in Jesus Christ. 
They're saints because of Jesus Christ. They are holy because their head, Jesus Christ, is holy. They are righteous because he is the righteous one. They are accepted in God because Jesus Christ was accepted by God. They are set apart as servants of Christ. The church is called out of the world and into the glorious light of God. So we see the author, we see the recipients, and now the greeting. You heard it already, something very similar to begin this service, boys and girls. You hear it every single week, twice. It's the greeting from God. Grace and peace. Sometimes grace, mercy, and peace from God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From God the Father and Jesus Christ. Or any number of greetings from God. We see one here. It's not just tradition that we have this. That the minister begins the service with a greeting from God. This is how God refers to his people. He comes with words of grace. In our text, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This greeting is a prayer. It's a pronouncement. But it's a living reality in the church at Philippi. Grace to you. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. It's freely given to the elect by God. It involves God not giving us what we deserve, namely condemnation. Grace to you and peace. Peace is the next term, and peace is what results from grace. You can't separate those two very far. You can't have peace without grace. You cannot have peace without grace. The grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ gives us peace with God. I think, well, why wasn't there peace with God? Because of sin. Adam and Eve became the enemies of God. And the only way for there to be peace once again between the offended creator and the offending creature was grace. Because without grace, there is no peace. Without grace, there is no hope. Grace to you and peace. Peace is the result of grace here. The grace of God is what it comes down to. For the Christian, our life is defined by the grace of God. It's the grace of God and only the grace of God that can soften the hardened heart. It's only the grace of God that can shut the mouth of the guilty defendant before God who says, I am a sinner. I lay myself before you in the name of Jesus Christ. It's the grace of God only which can bring peace, shalom. Not only between God and man, but also between man and man. And if you continue to read the letter to the Philippians, you'll see that this plays itself out in unity. Grace and peace are the blessings of union with Jesus Christ. They're the blessings of a loving pastor to his flock, which he pastored for a time. And he says, grace to you and peace from God the Father through God the Son. And this is how the pulpit congregation should address the pew. To the saints in Ancaster. Those who are holy. Those who are set apart. The pastor is preaching to the saints of God. To the recipients of grace and peace. Knowing full well that there will be hypocrites. There will be unbelievers. There will be unrepentant, etc. At any service on any particular Lord's day. As a pastor, as a preacher of the gospel, 
There will be need for your pastor to rebuke you at times, to correct you. There will be need for your pastor to defend the faith. Sometimes a pastor will have to urge the congregation, sometimes maybe even with tears, to turn from sin and to turn unto the Lord Jesus Christ. But he does so as a believer preaching to believers. As a dying man preaching to dying men. As a shepherd who loves the sheep. To the sheep who need a shepherd. Because the shepherd who proclaims the gospel from the pulpit week after week is a shepherd that must point to the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we see the Apostle Paul doing. And that's what faithful shepherds of the word must be doing today. A pastor must love his sheep. As sinful as they may be, in all kinds of strange situations that we all may get ourselves into, a pastor must love the sheep. And then he will be a faithful shepherd, a faithful servant, a faithful slave of the great shepherd of the sheep. That's the greeting. Second, we see praying with joy in verses 3 and 4. As we mentioned, the Apostle Paul went to Philippi after he had a vision. And he planted, by the Lord's blessing, a church in Philippi, which the Lord has kept and which the Lord has grown over the years. And Paul thinks back to that. And he thinks back to them, and he remembers the Philippians with fondness. They have continued to support him in his ministry to the Gentiles. Later in the, cha- later in the book, it becomes clear, but their, their pastor, the pastor in Philippi, Epaphroditus, is now in Rome. He brought an offering. He brought a gift to Paul as Paul is in prison. And when Epaphroditus came to Rome, he was going to return back to Philippi, but he became ill, very ill. And the Apostle Paul told him to stay until he's healthy. His health is going to improve, and he's going to be sent back to Philippi. Verse 3 shows here the thankfulness for the church. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Paul had devoted his time in discipling them, in teaching them. There was a relationship of mutual love between them. Look at verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine for you, all, sorry, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. We see the fondness for this helpful church in Philippi. It shows itself in the fact that Paul prays for them. That's no small thing. In fact, that's the greatest gift, that's the greatest action Paul can do on their behalf, is to pray for them. Don't underestimate the power of prayer. This week, I was the chaplain at Campfire Bible Camp, and in speaking to 8- to 12-year-olds, boiling things down to their level, at least attempting to, spoke about prayer It's just an ordinary thing. Really, it's merely conversation. It's speaking to God from the heart. There's nothing super magical about it. And yet, I told them, this is the most powerful thing that we do in life, is pray. Pray. And if you believe the power of prayer, what we actually confess about prayer, then you know no matter what the Lord brings into our life, it is reason To pray. It's not surprising that when your missionaries are on furlough and they they come to visit the churches or sometimes they come to the the schools or they send a letter asking for support, the first thing they ask for is prayer. 
Don't just continue to give us money. That is important. We'll talk about that in a minute. But pray for us. We need your prayers. It's not just a coincidence. It's not an empty request. It's an urgent need. Paul intercedes on behalf of the Philippian church. He prays for them. He remembers them all, making my prayer with joy. There's something startling about this in verse 4. We need to think about it for a moment. Paul says he always prays with joy. Really? How would he be able to pray with joy while he is in prison? Probably the same way that Paul and Silas could sing at midnight and pray at midnight in prison. Remember what it said in Acts 16? All the other prisoners were listening to them, singing hymns in the middle of the night. How could they do that? You know what their day was like? Falsely accused, stripped naked, and publicly beaten. Not only is that painful, that's humiliating. And how did they respond? They sang hymns to God and they prayed to God. They sang. How many martyrs in the history of the church sang as the flames crept up around them as they were tied or fastened to a stake, ready to be burned alive? What did they say? I regret it all. I shouldn't have done this. This isn't worth it. Nope. Thank you, God. Think of what Guido de Bray said in his final letter to his lovely wife. I thank God for the privilege to be a martyr for the gospel that I preached. Really? How could he do that? The reason why, brothers and sisters, is because of this small, very important word. Joy. Joy. It's life-changing. Joy is not an emotion. Joy is not an emotion. It is a state of being. Rejoicing is the accompanying action. But joy is a state of being. It's something to be prayed for. And remembered as it's centered upon the work of Jesus Christ. Christians can have joy because Jesus Christ himself is sitting upon the throne. At God's right hand. He continues to carry out the Father's will. And today... In July 2016, the news of the week was about as encouraging as the news of the last week and the week before. Whether it's Turkey or France or Orlando or wherever it may be, we look at the world, we just shake our head and say, wow, what a mess. Who wants to read the news anymore? Who wants to watch the news? How depressing is that? Where do we turn? What do we do? We say, that's okay. That's okay. Because Jesus Christ is upon the throne. Jesus Christ is still Lord of the lords of this world. He's still King of the kings of the earth. But there's nothing that happens outside of the will of our Father in heaven. There's not one single hair that falls from your head without the will of the Father. He gives to us a drought and he gives to us rain. Blessed be the name of the Lord. At the end of the day, all of our work and our worry and our sweat and our tears, at the end of the day we can say, it's in the hands of God. He is the God who is upholding all things by his hand of providence. Joy 
<clears throat> makes it so that the believer, at the end of their life, as they're on their sickbed, as they're on their deathbed, or as they see their loved ones pass away, joy is what makes it possible for them to say, it is well with my soul. There's no other way. It is well with my soul. Joy makes it so that the poor can be rich in Christ. The lost can be found in Him. The hungry may be filled, and the thirsty may drink of that spring of water, which if they drink from it by faith, they will never be thirsty again. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It is in joy that we can pray. And then thirdly, we see partnering in the Gospel, verses 5 and 6. Why is the Apostle Paul joyful? Here's the cause. There's an immediate cause, and there's also an ultimate cause. The immediate cause is what we find in verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This refers to the persevering faith of the Philippians. The ultimate cause is going to be found in verse 6. That emphasizes the fact of the preservation of the saints by God. Neither, neither of these two, perseverance of the saints or preservation by God, can be separated. So the immediate cause for joy is partnership in the gospel. It's a very important word. It's the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia, having all things in common. Communion, fellowship, in the ESV we have the translation here, partnership. You get to the idea pretty well. We're going to pause a moment and Think about this idea of partnership in the gospel. There is so much truth and application that flows out of this. And the reason why is because this isn't just a partnership between the Apostle Paul and this particular church in Philippi. This is speaking of the unity of all believers, partnering in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who ultimately is on your side. Those who are united to Christ. There are some things we need to note about this. What kind of partnership of, in the gospel are we talking about? First is that this partnership in the gospel is a partnership of grace. It's a partnership of grace. It isn't built upon common likes or dislikes. This isn't a club. This isn't a society established by man. It is a God-given establishment through Jesus Christ. Think of 1 Corinthians 1.9, he gave his blood. Delivered by the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 13.13. 13, or even look at Philippians 2.1. Jesus Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, session at the right hand of God the Father, all have secured this in grace. It's life-changing grace. It's soul-changing grace ordained to the elect from the beginning of the foundations or from before the foundations of the world. Ephesians 1 verse 4. It is that sweet, saving grace which is the medicine, which is the salve for the weary sinner. It comes down to grace. It's going to begin and end with grace. And there's no fellowship without this grace. And if you do not know about this grace, there is no fellowship in the gospel. Without this grace, there is no peace with God or with man. Without this grace, there is no comfort. There's no hope, no inheritance, no purpose. But, and here's the gospel part, here's the good news part, 
This grace is freely offered to you, sinner. The Philippian jailer was about to end his life and fall on his sword, but Paul stopped him. Don't kill yourself. Don't harm yourself. How did that wicked jailer respond? He fell down to his knees in humility. He said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Is your heart seeking the answer to that question this morning? The answer is still the same. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The grace is free. We receive it also by grace. Reach out our hand like a beggar before God to receive the gift of life. And then you join the family. Then you partake of this partnership in the gospel and it is a partnership of grace unto the glory of God. Secondly, it's a partnership of faith. Christ draws His people to himself, and gives them faith. The very thing they need to be saved, he gives unto them. By faith, make union here, by faith, believers share together in Christ's sufferings, Christ's body and blood, 1 Corinthians 10, 16. They're the same word as used, partnership or, or koinonia, 1 Corinthians 10, 16. They also share in his resurrection. They share in his glory. William Hendrickson says, quote, Faith commemorates Christ's death, rejoices in his presence, and awaits his revelation and glory. End of quote. This is a partnership of faith. Thirdly, it's a partnership of prayer and joy. This is the expression of faith. We pray individually. Boys and girls, you're going to go home today and you're probably going to pray before you eat and probably after you eat. and You pray before bed, but we also pray together, corporately, as the people of God. There's a partnership in prayer. We pray for others. We petition God for others. We intercede for others. How many people have you prayed for this week? If you're partnering in the gospel, you are making supplications to God on behalf of others. This is what it means to be a partner in the gospel. Fourthly, this is a partnership of love and help for one another. When the Father sent the Son to become sin for sinners, sinners became sons of the Father. What that means, brothers and sisters, is that you're in a family. doesn't matter what your last name is. You're in a family. A family united by grace and through faith. You become brothers and sisters of one another. We are in partnership of helping each other. As a family, believers express this by remembering the poor among them. We call this benevolence, ministry of mercy. In Acts 2, those who had land, the wealthy people, would sell their land and they would bring the money to the apostles and they would give it to those who had need. The same word is used there in Acts chapter 2, koinonia, or partnership, or communion. It's a partnership of love as a family. Fifth, it's a partnership in the gospel in the sense that they support the gospel together. They support the gospel together. And if I asked you this morning, how do you support the gospel? How would you answer that question? The church must not only support, make sure that the gospel goes forth from their pulpit in their midst. The elders are tasked with that calling. They need to make sure the gospel is faithfully preached from this pulpit every week. 
But also the church is called to a missionary task, a missionary calling in terms of missions. The Philippians Christians caught this when they asked for a church planter to come over and help by the work of the Spirit. And they did. And that church planter left. And they forgot all about him. No, they didn't. If you have your Bibles open, look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 15. They remembered him and supported him in the gospel. Though they were far away. Look at verse 15. Philippians 4. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. They caught that idea that they're partners in the gospel. We should be praying for more missionaries. We oftentimes pray the Lord will raise up ministers of the word to serve the churches. That's a good prayer as well. But also missionaries. We should make sure that we support them as much as we are able. The church ought not to have it as its goal to attract believers from other churches. If somebody comes here and they're from a less faithful church and they want to become members, good. They'll sit under the preaching of the word. They'll hear the full counsel of God's word preached. But the work of missions, in particular, involves calling in the lost, planting new churches, making new contacts in different countries, making new contacts in your own neighborhoods. If you don't know the person across the street, if you don't know that guy's name, you have a problem. You're not talking to your neighbors. You're not building relationships. Well, what's so important about that? My neighbor's an unbeliever. Yeah, that's the point. That's the point. Nobody comes to a church because they see a church sign or some witty phrase on a church sign or, oh, they looked it up in the book and they looked in the phone book and they found that oh, there's a church over here on Shaver Road. And no, they're invited because you work with them. So your kids play ball with them because you see them at the park. Same people, because you're mowing the lawn, same time your neighbor is. And your conversation goes beyond, my neighbor, nice day. We're partnering in the gospel. It's an old Christian hymn. I love to tell the story, for some have never heard. I love to tell the story. May that be true. If we have, or we confess to have, the gospel... Good news to dying sinners. And if we recognize the fact that someone who dies in unbelief ends up perishing in hell forever, and our thought is, well, we don't want to be a Bible-thumping neighbor who talks about, who cares? Souls are at stake. We understand the sovereignty of God, but He's placed you there now. Be bold, because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We are partners in the gospel in support of the gospel. Sixth, this is this fellowship of separation from the world. You might think, oh, that sounds a little bit different than what you just said. You said, go over and talk to my neighbor, unbelieving neighbor. Yes, and separate yourself from the world. Let me explain. We are in the world, but not of the world. This partnership, this koinonia fellowship, is over against the world. They don't have it. 
They need it, but they don't have it. They make, they make stuff up. They make up their own clubs. They make up their own societies because they lack communion of the saints. One commentator said, Attachment to Christ always means detachment from the world. That is, from worldly thoughts, purposes, words, ways, etc. What fellowship does darkness have with light? 2 Corinthians 6.14 In this way, you're in the world, but not of the world. In this sense, believers, one and all, are enlisted into the Lord's army. We are at war. We have a common foe. And it's at the very time that you forget that, that you realize you're losing the war. If you don't realize you're at battle, you're probably not fighting very hard. Read Ephesians 6 to see the seriousness of this war. Your soul is at stake, and the souls of your children. The devil wants them. He's powerful. Not the most powerful. He's wise, he's cunning, and yet God is on the throne. Congregation, the Philippian church excelled in support of the gospel. They risked their own pastor's life, Epaphroditus, to go to Paul. As we'll see, they supported the work of the gospel. This is why they are called partners in the gospel. In verse 6, we see the ultimate reason for joy, and that is that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We have here the preservation of God. We don't have much time to unpack this, but suffice to say, God, who is, God is the one who has done this work of grace in the hearts of believers. They are responsible for partnership in the gospel. Don't underemphasize that, human responsibility. They are totally responsible, completely responsible for partnership in the gospel. But ultimately, it will rest upon God until the coming of Jesus Christ. And this also is our comfort, as the church is called to be a witness to the world. God's sovereign, perfect, and unchangeable plan is to bring believers to the new heavens and the new earth. And he will do so. May he use us as instruments of grace or not. Blessed be the name of the Lord, whatever. He is, he is sovereign. He preserves. He enables perseverance. Verse 5 speaks of past and present. Verse, verse 6 speaks of our future. Our lives, congregation, are in God's hands. He causes us to follow, or he calls us rather to follow him, to walk in his way, to love his church, to pray for each other, to pray for, from hearts of joy. A heart lacking joy is a heart failing to trust God. You may think, well, that sounds nice when things are going well. I would love to be extremely joyful when I get a raise at work and my children are obedient and I have good health and fill in the blank. But what if I don't? What if I lose my job, my children are naughty, and I can't pay my mortgage? And all of a sudden the doctor just called and says I have to come in because he has bad news. Then where does joy go? Deep, deep down in our hearts. If they're renewed by the grace of Jesus Christ, joy resides there. 
Look, and this is the key to understand joy and trial. Look unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Not here, not self, not sickness, not pain, not brokenness, and not all the other stuff we get ourselves into, but there. Eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. For every look at self, take ten looks to Christ. And there you will find joy, because there is the source of joy. How can Paul pray with joy while he's in prison? Because of Jesus Christ. He's saved. The worst miserable sinner. The greatest persecutor of the church has become the greatest preacher of the gospel. Look unto Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, he loves you and will care for you. How can we know? Because we are his servants, and he is a faithful and a gracious master. Amen.